If you would keep your Bible or your bulletin open to Psalm 16 and Acts 2, and let's, uh, let's soak in Psalm 16 together for a few minutes this morning. Father, um, we ask that you would come and that you would show us Jesus um, in the mirror of your word. Unless you show us by your Spirit, we, we won't see Him. Unless you show us by your Spirit, we won't see ourselves and our need for Him. So we ask that you would do this for our good and your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The Bible says about itself that it is a mirror. I brought a mirror this morning in case you've forgotten what one looks like. Um, James chapter 1, James says uh, that God's word is like a mirror, and he warns us that it's it's a dangerous thing to look into the mirror of God's word and and see something and then walk away and forget what you saw. Um, it, It would be like me looking at the mirror in the morning and seeing... Well, of course, there's lots I can't do anything about, but perhaps there might be something on my face or a hair out of place, and, you know, it would be foolish for me to see that something's not right and then to walk away and just leave it that way, right? Of course, again, there are certain things I just can't change. But the Bible is like God's Word. We look into it and we see ourselves, but we see uh, that we are not all okay. It's convicting to read the Bible. We see that there are things in us that need to be changed. I think what James is getting at is don't walk away from God's word seeing your need for change and not pursuing the one who can change you. So the Bible is a mirror in that way that we, where we truly see who we are. But then Paul says in 2 Corinthians um, Chapter 3, he says, We all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. And that word beholding is a word that means to behold in a mirror. He says, so here we are with our faces unveiled. We're beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus. And as we behold and gaze on the glory of Jesus, uh, we are transformed from one degree of glory to ourselves into that same image, the image of Jesus. And so the Bible is a mirror in that way in that it shows us Jesus. Now, my friend Nathan's going to help me with this experiment here. So the one way you can use the mirror of God's Word is to see yourself, but you can also use a mirror to see someone else. So I see Nathan right now in the mirror, and he sees me, right? Very good. But... That's not the real Nathan. I mean, I see him. It looks kind of like him. But this is, this is face-to-face right here. Thank you, sir. You have done a fantastic job. Good job. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, uh, for now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, and he's talking about when we are in Christ's presence, 
we will see him face to face. So the Bible could be a mirror in two ways. One is to look at yourself and see yourself honestly. Um, and the other is to look and see Jesus. Uh, even though it's a dim reflection of him, and that we will see him clearly, even more clearly, uh, one day, the Bible gives us a reflection of who Jesus is. And so this morning, what I want us to do is use Psalm 16 as a mirror in both of those ways. Um, so I'm going to walk you through Psalm 16 as I have used it as a mirror to look at my own heart and life. And then I want to show you Psalm 16 and how it reflects Jesus. Because once you see yourself in God's word and see the change that needs to take place, then you need to see Jesus. Uh, Robert Murray Machane said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's very good advice. <laughs> um, especially if the look that you take of yourself is as convicting as it should be. Um, one look at yourself, ten looks at Christ. In other words, glance at yourself and then gaze at Jesus. What we tend to do is we glance at Jesus and just gaze at ourselves. So, this morning we're going to glance at ourselves long enough to realize our need for Jesus. Uh, so, hang in here with me with Psalm 16 as we use it as a mirror. I'm going to show you how I've used it as a mirror. I'm not going to be able to uh, hit every verse, unfortunately, but um, let me give you some examples. Verse 2, David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What David is saying is that Yahweh, the Lord, is good, and he's the only source of good. And that all David needs is the Lord and whatever the Lord chooses to give him. And when I look into that mirror of that kind of contentment in God, and I think about the chaos that's going on in my world and in my heart, um, I'm not content with the goodness of God. I find it difficult to say, Jesus, all I need is you and whatever you choose to give me. Because I have my own definition of the good life that I like to pursue. So the mirror of David's contentment exposes my lack of contentment in God. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David was content with God's people, with the saints. He was content not only to be a part of God's people, but to be identified. His, identifi his, his identity was in the covenant community of God. I look in that mirror of his contentment with God's people, his delight in God's people, and I say, uh, I have a hard time loving some of God's people, much less anybody else. And, and I'm supposedly, I think of myself as a people person, but I think the problem is, I am a people person in the sense that I want all you people to be about this person. So I struggle with delighting in you when I tend to want to delight in myself. So that's me in that mirror. 
Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. David is saying that by, taking, by seeking refuge in God, he was at the same time refusing to take refuge in any other God. I will not find my contentment in another God, is what he's saying. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Friends, I don't have time to tell you the stories, but if you want to have coffee, I'll tell you some stories about how I'm a living example that those who pursue other gods multiply their sorrows. We all have our favorite little G gods that we pursue. And I can tell you that over time, over the years, and even now, there are those that I like to pursue, and they only, only give me sorrow when they promise joy. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. David is saying, Lord, Yahweh, you are my portion. I'm not going to be like those who run after or acquire another god. Why go after and get false gods when I've got the true God? You're my portion. Contentment says, Lord, whether I have much or little, you are my greatest gain. When I look in that mirror, I have to ask myself, am I content with Jesus and what he has given me? If that's true, why do I want more? Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David was content with God's place for him. Well, okay, I, I read that and I say, well, of course he was. He was the king of a nation and he had a palace. Of course he's going to be content with the place God has put him. Um, but remember David's life. Um, he had enemies um, outside the kingdom, inside the kingdom, inside his own family. What good is a palace when your life is pain? What good is a lovely house when your life is a living hell? So David somehow is content with the boundary lines that God has given him. I look in that mirror and I say, uh, I have not always been content in the place God has put me. That's part of why I don't live in Texas anymore. Honestly. When I lived there, the place that I wanted, that I thought would give me contentment, was somewhere else, over here. And so I struggled there with God, is the place, are the boundary lines you've drawn for me, are they good? Can I, are they pleasant? Well, now that I'm here, I struggle with making this place another idol. Well, this place is pleasant, so of course the boundary lines are pleasant. It was 81 degrees one day here, while it was 101 degrees in Dallas. Of course, this is a pleasant place. But either way, I'm missing the point. When my contentment is in the place I am or the place I'd rather be, instead of in the place that Jesus is for me, the mirror exposes my lack of contentment. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. 
In the night also my heart instructs me. David was content to hear and obey the counsel of God. I look in that mirror and I say, do I bless God for giving me his counsel by his spirit and in this book? Do I long to sit under his instruction as it's preached in worship or taught in a class or in a small group or even as someone speaks it to me across the table with a cup of coffee? Do I long to hear God's word and submit to it, to his counsel? Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David was content with the presence and protection of God. And I have to ask myself, do I even practice God's presence? I've asked myself this question. If Jesus was physically present with me every day, he is present, but if he was physically here with me all the time, would I live differently? Do I practice God's presence? And then, do I rest in his protection, or am I constantly worried about what's going to happen next? So you can go on and on with these verses and use them as a mirror to uh, examine your own heart. Um, but, But eventually, if you keep doing that, looking in that mirror... God's Spirit will convict you and say and show you how little, as he has shown me, how little your contentment is in him in the midst of your chaos. And hopefully, by the power of his Spirit, he will drive you to a place where you cry out like Paul did, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this discontented soul? And Paul said, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, I have my rescue. And so that's what David does. He, this, this psalm is not only a mirror that exposes my lack of contentment in the chaos, It's also the mirror that shows me Jesus. How is that possible? How is this psalm about Jesus? Well, Betsy read it in Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching, and he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and then he quotes Psalm 16 and says, David wrote concerning Jesus, and then he quotes Psalm 16. So Psalm 16 is not just about David. God, speaking through David as a prophet, was talking, Psalm 16 is about Jesus, the Christ. Now, David didn't know who the Christ was going to be, but he knew that there was a Christ coming, one from his line of descendants would be the anointed Messiah King one day. And so I believe that David was able to find contentment in his chaos because he was able to be confident in Christ. He looked to this one to whom uh, that God had promised would come and deliver him 
from what he saw in the mirror. And so we need to do the same thing. So I want to just spend my last few minutes um, using Psalm 16 as the mirror to reflect Jesus. And uh, let's gaze at him as we do this. Let's take refuge in him as we do this. Jesus uh, not only prayed this psalm, as every good Jewish man would do in that time. He lived it. Listen to this. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Jesus submitted himself to the lordship of his Father and called it good. Not my will, but yours. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Jesus gave himself for God's people. And we were not delightful people to give oneself for. He valued us by saving us from the curse of God's wrath more than saving himself from it. He delighted to do it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross for us. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Uh, The Spirit led Jesus into the desert for 40 days after his baptism to be tempted by Satan himself. And with each temptation, Jesus answered with God's word. And finally, Satan flat out just said, look, worship me, and you can have all this. But Jesus doesn't run after other gods. And he said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus had every opportunity to run after another god. But he only submitted himself to his father. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Um, Here Jesus is praying as our high priest. The the Levitical priests uh, had no inheritance or portion uh, like the rest of Israel did. Their portion came from uh, the temple worship, uh, from the sacrifices. Uh, In fact, Deuteronomy 18 said, the Lord is the priest's inheritance. And so, this explains why Jesus could say to his disciples, I have food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my Father. And the same when we get to the verse um, in Psalm 16 about the the boundary lines being pleasant. Um, The priest did not have an inheritance of land. But Jesus... um, Himself is our place. He left the place of glory to come to this place. He took on human flesh. Those are not very pleasant places for the God of the universe to live. And yet He did it because He loves us. And from that, just as a side note, This is what I I, I kind of discovered about that. What makes a broken place like this a pleasant place to live is not the place, but it's the presence of the person who sent me there and the purpose for which he sent me. Broken places can be pleasant places to live when we trust the person who sent us there. Broken places can be pleasant places to live when we know he has a purpose for us there. And that purpose is to offer new life in Christ to the other broken people there. 
Jesus prayed, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. Jesus only did what his father said to do. He only did what his father showed him to do. He always submitted to the counsel of his father. Verse 8, I've set the Lord before me always. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. On the night when Jesus was in the garden, he he rebuked his disciples for their feeble attempt to be his bodyguards. And he said, do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? The Lord is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken by these soldiers here. His confidence in God at his right hand enabled him to suffer at the hands of those enemies so that we now could be people who say, I have the Lord at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. As I've said, he said, Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And so because he did that, we can consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Psalm 16.10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now this, this is where Peter said, this was talking about Jesus. Jesus explained to the disciples what would, be, what would happen. I'll be delivered over to the hands of my enemies. I'll be flogged. I will be mocked. I will be crucified. But on the third day, I will rise again. How did Jesus endure being broken for our brokenness and condemned to our death sentence? He endured in hope of being raised from the dead. It was the hope of resurrection that enabled Jesus to endure. And Jesus told his disciples before that happened, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you might be with me where I am. This is verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus knew that he was going back to the Father where he would be in the presence of full and forever joy. And he said to his disciples, because of what I'm about to do for you, I can prepare a place for you to be with me where I am and to enjoy the full and forever pleasure of God that I'll enjoy days from now. Friends, it's only because Jesus faithfully prayed this prayer and fulfilled its prophecy that you and I in Christ can pray this prayer and be confident and content in the midst of the chaos that's not only around us, but but that is in us. 
And so this morning, as we come to this table, this table is meant, Jesus left this for us to increase our confidence, to encourage our confidence in him. Um, If you have come this morning and the chaos that's in your heart is so strong and so heavy and so loud that your confidence in Christ is just rock bottom low, not even there. If that's you this morning, consider Christ who gave himself for you because he loves you who took the chaos that's going on in your heart on himself, the chaos of my sin and your sin, he took on himself so that we would know the fullness and forever joy of peace with his Father forever. Father, thank you for that good news. Help us to learn how to use your word as a mirror Uh, that exposes the mess and the chaos in us, but also uh, displays the glorious, uh, forgiving grace of Jesus that covers that chaos, that covers that mess, that cures it. Would you encourage us this morning as we come to this table to feed on you and to say, Oh, Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. This is the good thing, Father. Help us to feed on it. In Christ's name we pray.